presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Today we begin a new series of studies that I've entitled, It Is Finished. The subtitle is The Sure Foundation of Christianity. And that title, It Is Finished, is based on one of the statements that Jesus made from the cross uh, at the time, obviously, of His crucifixion. Uh, the Greek word is tetelestai. In our, char- in our English characters, that's T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I. And it's a, it's a Greek word, obviously, uh, and it's translated in our English Bibles by the uh, statement, it is finished, but it's just simply one word. It's the sixth of seven recorded statements made by Jesus at the time of His crucifixion. And so one of the things that we want to do is we want to explore what is it that Jesus meant? What exactly was finished? Because certainly at the time of the crucifixion, Jesus gave no explanation to what He meant when He said it is finished. There were, of course, uh, two events that were contemporaneous with Jesus' death that uh, does do provide hints that this was not just another Roman execution as so many other executions took place. First of all, the veil that separated the holy place where the priest operated on a daily basis in the temple, and the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go in once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom, the Scriptures tell us. How could that happen? And what was the significance of that? And then add to that the appearance three days later of a bunch of long dead friends and relatives whose tombs had been opened by an earthquake, you know that must have stirred up some thinking and some speculation among the uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem at the time. Uh, Old Testament prophetic writings and symbols, uh, certainly in addition to Jesus' own teaching during His three-year ministry, provide us some insight about the meaning of Jesus' final words and His death. But really it's the authors of the New Testament epistles who also were inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit who provide the most comprehensive explanation. Uh, Arthur W. Pink, in his book, the little book, The Seven Sayings of the Savior on the Cross, uh, I think that's still in print by Baker Books, incidentally. Uh, A.W. Pink wrote, This was not the despairing cry of a helpless martyr. It was not an expression of satisfaction that the termination of his sufferings was now reached. It was not the last gasp of a worn-out life, no. Rather, it was the declaration on the part of the divine Redeemer that all for which He came from heaven to earth to do was now done. That all that was needed to reveal the full character of God had now been accomplished. That all was required by the law before sinners could be saved had now been performed. That the full price of our redemption was now paid. And I close quote, I like the old hymn by Philip Bliss, um, Hallelujah, What a Savior, uh, because uh, Bliss expressed it this way, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. 
ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished, was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So over these next nine weeks, we're going to be talking about what Jesus meant when He said, It is finished. Now, uh, just to give you sort of an overview of where we're going today, we're going to talk about uh, these last words in the context in which they were given. You've got the, the, the seven last sayings of the Savior from the cross, and so we want to put this saying, it is finished, in that context uh, to better understand what was going on at least uh, around that very time frame. And then in our next session, we'll look at the prophetic connection. And what we're going to be doing then is looking just almost exclusively at the, uh, some Old Testament prophecies that talked about the fact that this was going to happen and in fact described in detail many of the things that were going on in the crucifixion and the things that are described um, that certainly perfectly fit crucifixion were things that uh, were not even being done at the time. In other words, crucifixion had not even uh, begun to be used yet at the time these uh, prophecies were written. Uh, then we're going to look at the centrality of the cross in Jesus' life. And what I mean by that is... Uh, we're going to see from day one when He came into the world, the things that were said about Him, and as He grew up, the things that He said about Himself, and then during His three or three and a half year ministry, the things that He said, and how His uh, his attention, His eyes, His focus was always on going to the cross, how the cross was central in His thinking and in His life. And then our fourth and fifth sessions, we're going to look at uh, Jesus as God. God's Passover lamb and also Jesus as the uh, as the perfect and final sacrifice on the day of atonement in those two sessions and see how those are fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. And then we'll talk about uh, Jesus as uh, uh, his new priesthood, uh, the new priesthood and because there's a new priesthood there is also a new covenant. We'll talk about justification by faith and what happens there the great exchange where Jesus uh, all of our all of the sins of God's people are accounted to Jesus and all of the righteousness of Jesus is accounted to God's people that uh, justification by faith. And then uh, in our final two sessions, we'll sort of uh, tie, tie up any loose ends that might be hanging. Uh, and particularly in the final session, we'll talk about uh, this. In fact, I've given it a tentative title, uh, to Telestai, Salvation Available or Salvation Assured. And what I mean by that title is when Jesus died on the cross, and th this is something you can be thinking about over the next weeks before we get to a, a real discussion of it. When Jesus died on the cross, did He make salvation possible 
or did he actually accomplish salvation for his people? And there's a big difference between the two. If, if what he did was make it possible, obviously something else has got to be done. And then how does that square with it is finished? And that's one of the things that obviously we're going to, uh, going to talk about. All right, if you will... Uh, you should have some notes, uh, and this first session is an introduction, uh, Jesus' last words from the cross. Uh, certainly the cross of Christ is the focal point of history. In fact, uh, B.C. and A.D. Uh, certainly point to that. We think of it as uh, before Christ and, and after death, but of course uh, the the calendar has to do with the, with the birth of the Lord Jesus, although... A lot of we aren't real sure about the exact uh, date of that. Of course, certainly it was uh, it was not on December 25th. But anyway, the the purpose of our study, as I mentioned to start with, is to understand what it was that Jesus has finished, and we're going to examine his uh, his statement in three different contexts. The immediate context is what we'll do uh, in this session, where we look at it in the context of the other things that he said, and then we'll look at it from an Old Testament context and then from uh, the New Testament writings. Uh, We want to try to understand the implications of what Jesus meant and certainly uh, more than anything else we want to glorify God in drawing personal application from this. If all we do is uh, just get wiser in terms of uh, or grow in our knowledge, uh, that would be great. But that's not the real purpose of Bible study. The purpose of Bible study is to grow in our knowledge in order that we can more adequately glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, The immediate context, of course, is, uh, is that of crucifixion. And we pick up the story uh, in the in the time between midnight and 9 a.m. It was the 14th of Nisan, which is the day of Passover. Remember, the the uh, lambs were brought into uh, into town, and they were examined on the 10th of Nisan. the The lunar uh, Jewish lunar month of Nisan corresponds basically to the last week or two of March and the first week or two of April in our calendars. That's re- any time. Uh, when we celebrate Easter, it's usually around Passover. Although I, I remember last year uh, we had Easter, and it was two weeks later before Passover occurred. You, you'd think we could uh, adjust the calendar so that it would uh, be a little bit closer than that. But Jesus has uh, has been betrayed by. Judas Iscariot, and he is, uh, he's been arrested, and, uh, he, uh, what's gonna happen is he's gonna bring, he's gonna be brought before Annas, and then he'll be brought before Caiaphas and a few of the elders, and ultimately, uh, before the entire Sanhedrin, uh, before daybreak, which incidentally was illegal, uh, according to Jewish law. The, the Jewish trials, uh, or hearings or trials, whatever you'd like to call them, they occurred at night. Um, when they appeared before Annas, uh, a single judge, that was also against the law. There was never any sort of formal indictment. there was uh, you couldn't conclude a trial within a one-day period, and yet uh, there were a number of illegalities that occurred in all of this, and yet uh, by 
early morning around daybreak, or close to daybreak or shortly thereafter, uh, they deliver Jesus to Pilate and insist that He be put to death. So let's pick up the story in Luke chapter 23 and just uh, we'll make a few comments as we go through here. Then the whole company of them arose. Now the them refers to the Sanhedrin. Uh, the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now, Jesus certainly uh, made no bones about the fact that he was the Messiah. But uh, what they're accusing Jesus of is sedition. And that is that uh, he, he was going to uh, essentially treat against the Roman Empire. Now, of course, that had not even been brought up in any of these Jewish trials that had taken place during the night. They were upset and they accused Jesus of blasphemy. But the Sanhedrin recognized that the Roman government was not going to put anybody to death simply because they called and said they thought that they were God. Well, And of course, Jesus did more than think He was God. Certainly, He is God in human flesh. So they changed the charges to uh, essentially to sedition or uh, treason. And uh, But they mention in passing that He claims to be uh, Christ, a king. Remember, the, uh, the, the Messiah was a king. He was also to be a priest, which is a real unusual kind of situation because under the uh, Old Covenant, which is still in effect at this point, remember the New Covenant does not go into effect until Jesus dies. Uh, a covenant requires a cutting. Uh, uh, when you, you cut a covenant, there was the, the, the shedding of blood. Well, Jesus' blood had not been shed yet. Uh, so the Old Covenant is, uh, is still in effect. And under that Old Covenant, there was a definite separation between rulers and priests. In other words, if you were going to be a priest, you had to be uh, a Levite. Uh, and if you were going to, uh, if you were going to be in the possibility of being a high priest, you had to even not only be a Levite, you had to be from the family of Aaron, who was the first high priest. And of course, if you're a ruler a king, you had to come from the tribe of Judah. So one of the fascinating things about Messiah is that Messiah was going to eventually combine those offices. So they accuse him of being Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? And he answered him, well, you've said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. So again, they, they pressed the fact that the things that Jesus had been teaching and preaching were things that were essentially were against Rome. Well, remember, these people hated Rome. They hated the Romans. But now they, you know, the, the I guess it's the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they're trying to use the Romans to rid themselves of Jesus. Verse 13 tells us, Pilate then called together the chief priests, uh, incidentally, between verses 6 and 12, which is not in your notes, um, it was part of your reading assignment, 
But that's when Jesus is sent to Herod. Remember, this is the time of the Passover. In fact, this is the day of Passover, which is the day of preparation. It started at sundown the night before, and then it's going to proceed through this entire day. It will end at sundown, and of course Jesus will have died around 3 to 3.30 in the afternoon on the day of Passover at the very same time that all the other Passover lambs in Jerusalem were being slain. And remember, uh, Jerusalem was... I'm sure it was Bedlam there because you've got all of these tens of thousands of people, uh, Jewish people who are coming to Jerusalem. Remember the old covenant, the old law uh, required that Jewish males come to Jerusalem three times a year, and one of those times was at the time of Passover because that's where you celebrated the Passover. So these guys had come, and of course they'd bring their wife, they'd bring their kids, and it was a big celebration time. It was a wonderful time time for renewing old acquaintances and stuff. And that's one of the reasons that these people, uh, the the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, uh, were reluctant to start with to even try to do anything about Jesus because the crowds were so great and He had been very popular, particularly up uh, up in the area of Galilee. So Jesus was, when, when uh, Pilate finds out that Herod's in town for the Passover, he sends Jesus, he sent Jesus over there. And of course, Jesus didn't even respond to Herod, and Herod just sent him back uh, to, uh, to Pilate. And then in verse 13, it says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I didn't find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Notice, this is the second time Pilate says, I do not find any guilt in this man. And neither did Herod. Look, Herod didn't find anything wrong either. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I'll therefore punish and release him. Isn't that interesting? I can't find anything wrong with the guy, but just to appease you folks, I'll, I'll have him beaten and then I'll turn him loose. Well, if this is Roman justice, uh, who wants it? But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So they'd rather have a murderer and a real insurrectionist than, uh, than Jesus of Nazareth. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. Remember, uh, Pilate's wife had warned him. She'd had this weird dream and said, Look, I'm telling you, don't have anything to do with this guy. You need to stay away from him. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify! Hey, incidentally, this crowd who's stirred up by these Jewish leaders, this is the same crowd who just a few days before on the uh, on the 10th of Nisan, when all the lambs came into town and Jesus rode into town, we call that the triumphal entry, that's uh, Palm Sunday, that's when they were shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Uh, this is wonderful. And, uh, and now they're shouting, crucify Him, crucify Him. And the third time He said to them, Why? What evil has He done? I have found no guilt deserving death. That's the third time. Remember, one of the purposes of, of setting aside the lamb on the 10th of Nisan uh, 
was so that you could look at the lamb and be sure that there was no defect in the lamb whatsoever. You, you know, if you had if you had a little lamb out there uh, in your in your flock that uh, was kind of lame and had one bad eye, said, "Well, let's just offer that one up." No, no, you had to offer the very best that you could, and so you wanted to be sure there was no kind of defect. And incidentally, the reason you offered up the very best was because that lamb, that Passover lamb, certainly was a picture of what Jesus was going to do just several hours uh, from the time that we're reading about right here. It says, uh, I found no guilt deserving death. I'll therefore punish and release him. Again, what's, where, where's the justice in this? He's certainly trying to appease these people. Because remember, remember again, all Pilate wanted to do was to keep peace in this area. This was the worst assignment you could have uh, if you were a governor somewhere uh, in the Roman Empire. Nobody wanted to be here. He didn't want to be here. And the last thing he wanted was some sort of brouhaha getting all stirred up. And so, you know, well, if it'll, if it'll satisfy you guys, I'll have him beaten and then I'll turn him loose. But there's just nothing here uh, worth killing him over. It says, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. So he turned them over, uh, turned Jesus over to them. And remember, there's a there's a scourging. Most a lot of people didn't even survive the scourging, where they were beaten with uh, with something that was kind of like a cat of nine tails. It had bits of glass and stone and metal in the tips of it, and it would just rip open the uh, uh, the flesh and you know you, you hit an artery uh, you could have some uh, obviously arterial bleeding and the victim would be dead before he ever got a chance to go to the cross so the crucifixion is about to go on so what Pilate has done here you, you've got these three instances you've got three instances in which Jesus appeared before uh, Jewish uh Council, and then you've got uh, three times that Jesus appears before uh, essentially Roman uh, council, and the result certainly is an unjust, and it's a political decision. Not only an unjust decision, but it was a political decision that uh, Pilate was making. All he wanted to do was keep peace in the area. Notice it tells us in verse 32. And now it's nine o'clock in the morning because that's when Jesus went was nailed to the cross, uh, and so now we look at the period from nine a.m. until noon. And again, it's it's Passover day, and that's early in the morning, uh, and uh, the lambs aren't going to be slain until three o'clock in the afternoon, and that's when Jesus will 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 die as well. Uh, the uh, Passover is also known as the day of preparation. The next day would be a high holy day, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, uh, followed by feasting for, uh, uh, I think it's uh, seven or eight days. All right, now notice uh, it says in verse 32 of Luke 23, it says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, that's Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals. Notice uh, he was put to death outside, he's, he's crucified outside of Jerusalem. Um, uh, when he was uh, 
if you look at this and you look at all of the uh, all of the accounts of what happened, the first thing they did was offer Jesus wine and myrrh, uh, uh, myrrh mixed with wine to drink before he began to do this, that, and that was to serve as some sort of an uh, an analgesic uh, to help alleviate some of the pain. But Jesus refused that drink. We we do know that. But anyway, he's uh, it says there they crucified him and the criminals one on his right and one on his left. And here's the first saying, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this word forgive, the verb forgive is a present tense verb, and that means that Jesus prayed it over and over, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. Oh, Father, forgive them. So repeatedly, Jesus is praying for uh, for their forgiveness. Now, notice also, in looking at these seven sayings, that the sayings begin, uh, uh, several of them, uh, let me just give you an, a quickie overview of the seven sayings. The first one, and the last one, and the middle one, uh, one, four, and seven, are all dressed, addressed to God. And uh, the first one and the last one are addressed to God as Father. The fourth one is not. It's just addressed to God. And we'll talk about that when we get to it in just a minute. The second one is addressed to a criminal. The third one is addressed to Jesus' mom and the disciple John, the beloved. And the uh, fifth and sixth, the fifth one certainly addressed to, uh, and the sixth one to, to all of those folks who were around the cross at the time. So, the first one is addressed to the Father. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And notice it says, they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him. Now there's a significance to this, and I don't want to get ahead, but in our next study when we look at the Old Testament connection, we're going to see that, for example, in the Psalms and also in Isaiah's writings, that these very things, uh, this this casting lots to divide garments, this uh, ruler scoffing, the soldiers mocking, these are all things that were prophesied hundreds of years before this even happened. There was a uh, a book that was popular. Oh. A number of years ago, I think it was written back in the mid '60s by a guy named Hugh Schoenfield. Uh, Hugh Schoenfield, that's it, Schoenfield, as the title of the Passover plot, and it's uh, his. Um, the basic idea in the book is that Jesus had some sort of messianic complex and he had determined that he was just going to set out to fulfill all of these prophecies on his own and so everybody would think he is the Messiah. Well, of course, that's ridiculous when you read the Old Testament, particularly because of these events that occurred around. How could Jesus ensure that People were going to gamble for his garments. How could they ensure the very words that uh, people were going to say to him as they mocked him? And uh, so Schoenfield's uh, book uh, sort of uh, fell flat is for, for a lot of us. All right, now notice uh, in... Uh, in your notes, I've uh, I put a passage there from Isaiah 53 where it says, He poured out His... <clears throat> 
He poured out His life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So, and what is Jesus doing? He's interceding. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now it tells us verse 39. Remember when uh, when the crucifixion first started, both of these characters on either side of Jesus were really giving him a lot of grief. They were both cursing at him and and you know, hey, why don't you get down, get us down with you if, if you're this big deal. And yet all of a sudden one of them just changed. I mean, just out of the blue, just changed. One of the criminals says in verse uh, uh, 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong. And he's exactly right. Remember, that's what Pilate had said. This guy hasn't done anything wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, the repentant criminal, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, what was required of this criminal to be saved? Did, what opportunity did he have uh, to get down off the cross and get baptized before he died? He didn't have any. What kind of good deeds could he have done? How much of his whatever stuff he had? Uh, if he was a criminal, maybe he was a thief and had stolen a bunch of things. What, what, could, what, could he, what kind of amends could he make while he was on the cross? None. None. It's by grace we are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Notice what, what had happened on, this, on the cross. On these two crosses. Is that God had all of a sudden invaded one man's life. Uh, I, I heard it said a long time ago. It said about these, about these two guys. He said, God saved one that none might despair. But He saved only one that none might presume. Are we presuming on the grace of God? Do we just assume because our dad and mom you know, grew up in the church and they're pillars in the church that we're going to get in? Do we just assume that our spouse is, uh, t- takes care of all the religious stuff in our house? And so, you know, well, just uh, I'm going to get in by the skin of my teeth. She can put in a good word for me. He can put in a good word for me with Jesus and, and I'll be okay. Oh, no, 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 no. A thousand times times no each of us has to receive Christ and this one guy did all of a sudden the Lord just worked in this guy's life he regenerated him and we're going to talk about that when we get to the section on justification uh, but here he received this uh, you know the first the first saying is our words of intercession this second saying is a words of salvation um, in John chapter 1, it says, He came to that which was His own, but His own didn't receive Him. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right or the authority to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, 
but born of God. Notice, God does not have any grandchildren. He only has children. Now, if you think you're going to get in because you're one of God's grandchildren, you're wrong. God doesn't have any grandchildren. John 19 tells us, uh, we see the third uh, saying of Jesus and it's uh, words of affection. It says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby... Now, who is the disciple whom He loved? That's right. It's John. Not John the baptizer, but John the beloved. John the baptizer is already dead. He was, remember, uh, executed by Herod sometime earlier. But when John writes and refers to himself rather than using the personal pronoun I, uh, he... Talks. Of, he uses this phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Doesn't mean Jesus didn't love the others. It just means it was just so phenomenal to John to be loved by the Lord Jesus that that's why he refers to himself. So uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John the beloved are standing there at the cross, and uh, it's he said to his mother, "Woman, behold your son." And then he said to the disciple. Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So isn't it interesting that here, as Jesus is taking on the sins of all of His people, and He's in agony over being crucified, that He is still attentive to His mother's needs. Now, uh, just a word or two about this. When he says, woman, behold your son, some people think that what he's saying is he's saying, uh, mom, look over here at John. This is going to be your son from now on. And it may mean that because we, we can't be sure. But more than likely what it means is there he is. He's stretched out on the cross. He is stark naked. He's been beaten so badly that you can't even recognize him uh, who he is. And, uh, and he says, Woman, behold your son. Look at me. In fact, remember uh, when Jesus was 40 days old and he was brought into the temple uh, for Mary and Joseph to uh, pay the purification fee, that there was a guy named uh, Simeon who was in there, the old guy, and he took Jesus in his arms and he began to talk about, uh, my eyes have seen your salvation. And we recognize that salvation's in a person, not in some sort of program. And yet one of the things that he said when he looked at Mary, he said, and one day, he said, a sword will pierce your own soul. And is that that is this the moment that Simeon was talking about when she beheld her firstborn hanging there on the cross. Um, uh, certainly the second one, uh, there, there's no uh, misunderstanding about what that might mean when he says to John, Behold your mother. He's saying, Look after her in my absence. Remember in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we have the example of Jesus that even in these moments of suffering and agony, when he's got so many other things on his mind, 
that he says, John, look after mom. And that's, I think, that's, that's, that's marvelous. Yeah, I often wonder when I read that, well, where were these half-brothers? You know, James was, uh, was a half-brother of his, and he later became sort of the, the head of the church there in Jerusalem, uh, as we read in the book of Acts. But why not, uh, why not get one of the half-brothers to look after, after mom? But the truth is, is that... Um, uh, at that point, we're not convinced that uh, James even recognized him for who he really was because obviously the resurrection has not taken place yet. Matthew chapter 27. Uh, now they, it's, uh, it's right around noon and from now on we, the, these last uh, uh, statements of Jesus take place between noon and 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And these are times, these are three hours of darkness. Uh, there was a, uh, you know, what was happening on the cross? Well, uh, Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And in 2 Corinthians he wrote, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, remember, 3 p.m. is the time of all these ceremonial sacrifices. There was one lamb that was staked out there at the temple. It was staked out on the 10th of Nisan, and he's been out there, and all the folks who have been around have seen him out there. And he's the one that the high priest is going to slay at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the time of the afternoon sacrifice. And when he slays that sacrifice that priest is going to say one word. He will say, Tetelestai, it is finished. And isn't it interesting that outside the city gates at Golgotha, the place of the skull, at exactly the same time, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, God's real Passover lamb is going to cry out, Tetelestai, it is finished. But we're not quite there yet. It's right around noon at this point. It says, now from the sixth, and Matthew 27, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land. Uh, you have to wonder what the, what all the pilgrims who were in Jerusalem thought about that. Uh, it was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That was from noon until 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's Aramaic. And it says, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice, he doesn't address God as Father. He addresses Him as God. Why? Because God has turned His back on His Son. Why? Because the Lord Jesus has become the sin offering. He has become sin. He has made sin for us. All of the sins of all of God's people were placed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the first time in all of eternity, the Father and the Son who have always been face to face in perfect fellowship, the Father has turned away. See, that's one of the reasons in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours earlier, Jesus had prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this pass from me. Because Jesus is ready to do the will of God. You know, not as I will, but as You will. But I'm sure the thing that Jesus dreaded the most was not being 
in fellowship with the Father for that period of time while, the, uh, while He was enduring the wrath that was due to me and to you if, if you know the Lord Jesus. It's a time of, of physical darkness for all the people in that area, but it was a time of spiritual darkness for Jesus because... Jesus was abandoned by the Father, and His wrath is by that's, that's the wrath of God. He was separated from the Father, and that's the reason the Bible tells us, "I will never leave you. I will never forsake you." Well, how can God be so confident that He would never leave me? He would never forsake me, because that's what He did for Jesus for my sin. Praise be to God for His great grace and mercy. Well, notice the circus factor sort of uh, enters in again. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Oh, this man's calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Now this is not the wine that's mixed with myrrh. This is just sour wine, wine that's gone bad. This is to make crucifixion even more miserable. Folks are going to, you know, we're going to see in a minute Jesus is going to cry out, I'm, I thirst. And we're going to see why He cried that out. And they're going to give Him a drink of sour wine. This, this makes the experience even more miserable. But, the, but notice, somebody uh, filled, filled it with sour, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him or not. So here, again, you've got sort of a carnival atmosphere, like a, like a wild west hanging almost that's, uh, that's going on out here. And remember, inside the city, this is when the lambs were being slain. The exact time. And think about how many times previously the Father has said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And now He's experiencing the wrath of God that's being poured out for the sins of His people. John 19, verse 28, After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished... He had taken on the sins of His people. He said, and notice parenthetically John says, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. Notice these are words of unwavering resolve because Jesus is ready to give up His Spirit. Notice, remember He said, no man takes my life from me. I give my life willingly. I have the right to I have the right to lay down my life and I have the right to take up my life again. My father's given that to me. But Jesus knew and John reminds us that in the scriptures in Psalm 69 verse 21 that was one of the things that was going to occur prophetically that he would say I thirst. And so Jesus knowing that that was that was in the scripture said that notice he's just he's just resolved to do the will of God to fulfill the scriptures in John chapter twelve uh, Jesus said now my soul has become troubled and what shall I say Father save me from this hour but it was for this purpose I came to this hour Father glorify your name. 
Jesus said, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Remember hyssop? From the the first time that the Passover lamb was slain back in the days of Egypt. They were to kill the lamb, collect some of the blood in a basin, and then they were to take a little bunch of hyssop, which was a wild plant that grew all over the place. You dip it in that blood and apply it to the doorposts and to the lintel. And it makes the and as you apply it to the lintel, certainly some of it would have dripped down on the threshold, and it makes a perfect cross when you think about it that way. Gave him they held it to his mouth, and when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. To telestai. Uh, that's a word that servants used when the task was completed. It was a word that was used by merchants that meant the debt is paid in full. It was a term that was used by artisans. Um, that, uh, For example, the painting is done. There's nothing else to be done to it. And it was the word that the high priest used when the sacrifice, when the lamb's throat was cut and he was sacrificed to telestai. The sacrifice was perfect. Notice what Paul writes, uh, and I put this in your notes from Colossians chapter 2 when he writes about this. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Notice, He canceled out the certificate of debt. That's the debt is paid in full. That was the point that he was making. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He cried out, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Luke 23 tells us it was now about the sixth hour. And so, um, again, this goes back to to the noontime. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., when the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus calling out with a loud voice. So so we've we've heard the word of triumph to telestai. It's finished. And now we hear the words of confidence on the part of Jesus because now Jesus, notice how He addresses God in His final statement. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. Remember again, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down in my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. My Father is the one who gave me that authority. It says, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. 
So he returns to the use of filial terminology when he addresses God as his Father. It reminds me of the the prayer that he had had with his disciples when he said, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He knew that after his death he would be resurrected and after his resurrection he would be he would ascend to the right hand of the Father in heaven. That's the reason I put a, a, a short passage from Hebrews chapters 4 and 5 in your notes. Let's look at that for just a minute. Uh, incidentally, to, to understand the author's letter to the Hebrew, we don't, we, we don't know who wrote it. But to understand the author's letter to the Hebrews, and this is to the Hebrew people, this, these are, uh, he's, it's addressed to uh, Christians who have come out of a Jewish background. Uh, some people would call them completed Jews or Messianic Jews. And what had happened was persecution had broken out and the Jews weren't being persecuted nearly as much as the Christians were. And so it was really easy to give, start giving some serious thought to saying, well, hey, why don't we go back to you know, the, the other deal that we used to have, go back and, and, and practice Judaism rather than this Christianity stuff. And, uh, and so uh, there, there are just warning after warning in the book of Hebrews about you can't go back. That was the final sacrifice. There is no more sacrifice. Those animal sacrifices just won't get the job done. And the key word in the book of Hebrews is the word better. Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Joshua. Uh, uh, the new covenant is better than the old covenant. The sacrifice of Jesus is a better sacrifice than animal sacrifices. There's just comparison and contrast all the way through the book of Hebrews and a lot of good practical application as well. So let's look at something here from the uh, tail end of Hebrews chapter 4 beginning at verse 14 uh, into part of chapter 5. Notice uh, what the writer says. He says, "Since, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. All right, so now we're talking about what was going to happen to Jesus uh, on Ascension Day. He would be exalted to the right hand of the Father where he lives forever to make intercession for us. And when we get to the session, I think it's the sixth session on um, a new priesthood and a new covenant, we're going to talk about this in detail. So um, don't worry that I'm skimming over it right now. But the idea here is uh, the, the writer of Hebrews acknowledges that Jesus has already um, uh, been resurrected he's ascended into heaven and he is uh, he is his ministry of redemption uh, he took care of on the cross now he has a ministry of mediation uh, a ministry of intercession for his people he's called the uh, called the advocate in second John 1 uh, little children I you should not sin, but if in, if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the propitiation for our sins. He's He's the one who uh, took the wrath, who took God's wrath for our sin. And that word advocate is the same word that's translated comforter uh, in the upper room situation. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter or the helper. It's the word parakletos. Para, alongside 
kletos, uh, there's the verb uh, to call, one who is called alongside to help. And in the uh, upper room, it was the Holy Spirit who was going to be called alongside. Um, You know, He would come on the day of Pentecost and He would be a comfort and He would assist them. He would guide them into truth. He would bring things to their remembrance. But then you get to 2 John chapter 1, that same word, parakletos, is translated by the word advocate. And now we see Jesus Himself as one who is called alongside to help the old. Remember the old enemy of ours, the devil, is called the accuser of the brothers. And so when He accuses us, we have an advocate with the Father. And He's the perfect high priest because He's fully God. He's fully man. So He can represent us to God. He represents God to us. He didn't mean to get into all that, but anyway, let's read. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted. You say, well, you know, but but he doesn't he doesn't know what it is to sin. But think about it. You know, maybe sometimes we hold out a little bit longer uh, before we eventually do sin. Jesus held out completely. He never did sin. It just to the nth degree. He says, uh, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Here's your application. Let us then draw conf- uh, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then in chapter 5 it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. In other words, the Levitical priests, you know, they're just like the rest of us. Now they they came from a family that uh, that God had ordained would be the one who would serve as the priests in the Old Covenant. But... They had the same problems that we had. They would be beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Then he makes the contrast and the comparison. So also, Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but He was appointed by Him who said, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. And in another place He says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the reason there's a new covenant, because there's a new priesthood. The law changed. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. He learned what it meant to be an obedient son. And being made perfect, that doesn't mean there was a time Jesus wasn't perfect. It means being made complete. That is, He understood completely our situation. He understands what we're going through. That's why He is such a competent and qualified great high priest is because He not only is God, He is also fully man. 
After being uh, and being made complete, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to, I promise you, we're going to explain all of that when we get to the sixth session. Hebrews 10, verse 11, And every Levitical priest stands daily at his service. Notice he stands daily. When you look at the um, the furnishings in the old tabernacle, uh, there's you know there's a table in there, and there's a lamp stand, and there's uh, uh, outside there's an altar uh, for offerings, a sacrificial altar inside. There's a there's a, a little altar for uh, burning incense uh, behind the veil in the holy of holies. There was uh, there was one piece of furniture, and there was the ark of the covenant, which had the mercy seat covering on it. Not a chair in the place. No chairs anywhere. Why? Because the work was never done. There's always another sacrifice to make. And that's the point that the author is making here. Every Levitical priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. All they did was make a person ceremonially clean. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Why? Because he was tired? No, because he was, that's it, he was finished. It is finished. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected, he has made complete, past tense, it is done, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And where did he do that? He did that at the cross. So, what do we conclude from this? Uh, and we only got about three minutes. There's a lot of application we can make here. Let me just uh, uh, point you to uh, conclusion A. What did Christ Jesus accomplish by His death? Among other things, His death was a substitutionary sacrifice as He took the place of each of His people. It was a propitiatory, a propitiatory sacrifice because He turned away God's wrath from His people by receiving it Himself. It was a reconciling sacrifice because He was mending the relationship, the broken relationship between God and His people. And it was a redemptive sacrifice because He was purchasing all of God's people from the penalty and the power of sin and ultimately either at death or at the return of Christ ultimately we will also be removed from sin's very presence we have been uh, we've been justified we've been freed from the penalty of sin we're being sanctified we're being freed from the power of sin and we will be ultimately glorified when we are free from the very presence of sin. So what's an appropriate response from us because of such amazing grace and love on the part of God? Well, we ought to praise Him. Praise is for who He is. And we ought to thank Him for what He has done in Christ. And then we ought to be obedient to Him. Not out of a sense of duty because we have to but out of a sense of devotion, out of a sense of delight because of what He has done for us 
in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pontius Pilate couldn't find any basis for any charge against Jesus, and he declared Jesus innocent, but he condemned him anyway. And he did that so you and I can be forgiven. Are you in need of forgiveness from God? Are you in need of forgiveness because of someone else that you've hurt? Are you experiencing the torturous effects of harboring unforgiveness? Turn to Christ. Are you confident that one day you will be with Christ after you die? Or are you just presuming that? What would you say if God were to ask you why you should be admitted to heaven? He's not going to ask you. But if He were to, what would you say? Would you say, well, you know, I've done the best I can. You know, my mama's a real staunch church lady. And I, I, I know some of that rubbed off on me. Well, you know, I, I, I used to do really good things. I've done a lot of good things. I've done a lot more good things for people than I've done bad stuff. No, none of those answers will work. Think about that verse of uh, Augustus Toplady's old hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. If God were to ask, why should I let you into heaven? Say, Lord, there's nothing in, there is no reason whatsoever in me why you should let me in. I deserve the lowest of the pit of hell. But Lord, I'm trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ that when He died on the cross, that He died for all of my sin. All of my sin. And because of that, you have credited to me all of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And when you see me, you see me clothed in the marvelous, righteous raiment of your perfect Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I genuinely concerned about the welfare of other people? How has my relationship with Christ positively impacted my relationship with other people in my family and in my community? A lot of questions for us to ask ourselves. And we're going to have time over these next weeks to, uh, to talk about that. Let's, uh, let's conclude with prayer. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.